Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that, so thank you. All right, now for the show. Hey guys, this week we're taking a week off, so we're uh, rerunning one of our favorite episodes, one of our favorite series on the Midnight Club. We're combining both parts one and two into one gigantic episode for you guys. We think it's gonna be a great little prologue for next week's episode, which is Option Magazine, uh, one of the most legendary Japanese tuner magazines of all time. So this'll get you in the mood for that. If you haven't heard it already, Joe is not on this episode, unfortunately. Uh, He wasn't born yet. So it's just James and I. So enjoy. Here is one of our favorite series, Midnight Club. Or Team Midnight, if you're nasty. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Welcome back to the Past Gas Podcast from Donut Media. I'm your host, James Pumphrey. And I am Nolan Sykes. Uh, today, we have... Oh, I'm excited about uh, this Yeah, one. this is a good one. This, this is like one of the coolest car things ever. Yeah. We have a very... It's so secretive. Cool topic for you guys today. We are talking... About a racing group known as the Midnight Club. The Midnight Club. Yes. The fastest racing team, fastest street racing team in Japan. They got a comic book yeah. made after them. Yeah. Thanks to an in-depth investigation by our wonderful writer, Joseph. Thank you, Joseph. Uh, we're able to bring you the truth about the Midnight Club. Uh, it's worth pointing out 
the most of the articles you find on the Midnight Club are based on the Wikipedia article. <laughs> That's it. That's journalism, man. Yeah. Unfortunately, for the vast majority of them, the information on the Wikipedia page has been purposely crafted to mislead people to protect the real members' identities. Oh, my God. They're the Illuminati. It's insane. That means a large amount of what people think they know about the club is actually wrong, deliberately so. But fret not, because uh, we're, we're super excited to share the real story behind the Midnight Club. All right, so to know the story of the Midnight Club, you have to know 1980s Japan. Throughout the 1980s, Japan was experiencing one of the most significant financial bubbles of all time. Uh, the entire bubble was similar to the one that we had in the U.S. in 2008 and the one that is currently taking place in China. The post-World War II economy of Japan had encouraged citizens to save their money, causing an unbelievable surplus of savings. Uh, the banks had no problem meeting their reserve requirements thanks to the massive cash surplus, which in turn allowed the banks to engage in much more lenient lending behavior. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Okay, good. There were also many... It's, it's like America. Yeah. <laughs> it's like how it was 10 years ago. No, but that's a crash. What, well, yeah. what we're saying here is just like after World War II, there was this culture in Japan where the government was like, just save your money, save your money, save your money. And the reason that these cars happened is because the companies looked around and they were like, oh, everyone's got a bunch of money. Yeah. We could we could make something really cool stuff and they could buy it. Yeah. And so they just started making twin turbo six cylinder behemoths. Yeah. We will get there. Uh, there are also many government programs that intended to weaken the U S dollar against the Japanese yen through means of financial deregulation. Uh, the combination of excess liquidity in the banks and financial deregulation led to a massive economic boom known as Japan's, Economic miracle. Prices on domestic stocks and real estate had risen to an all-time high, tripling in value. Tripling. Tripling in value between 1985 and 1989. Wealthy parents could afford to buy their children the nicest sports cars Japan had to offer. Sports cars were absolutely everywhere in 1980s Japan. The best of all, they were dirt cheap. A new Nissan Silvia S13Q only cost roughly 7500 US dollars, which is about $18,000 today. Can you imagine getting a Sylvia that much? <laughs> yeah. You can't, like, you can't get a Sylvia for eighteen grand. I mean, you can. You could, but like a clean one. Yeah. That's what they're, they sell for now. Yeah. They haven't depreciated it at all. Uh, in the big picture, it was the Japanese bubble that led to the birth of all the street racing in the country. I am hooked. Kids loved the idea of driving a fast car on the cheap in the early 80s. Some of the more popular choices, of course, were the Celica Supras. They weren't the Mark IV Supras yet. They're the Celica Supras. Uh, AE86s, S30s, S130s, RX7s, Nissan Skylines, Sylvia again. Uh, and yeah, since they all had easy money from their parents, all they would do is dart onto the highway in Tomei or Wangan and start zipping around looking for trouble. The Tomei Highway became notorious for heavy-duty street racing. Uh, the racing was known as... Okay. This is uh, Japan. Probably going to butcher some of these words. So just Shutoku. Shutoku. Charcuterie. <laughs> racing was known as Shokudo or Roulette Zoku, but primarily called Shokutan. And it was incredibly dangerous. 
obviously. Uh, amateur racers were known uh, for getting in major accidents, for causing major accidents pretty much daily. And as the decade progressed, the highways became crowded with uh, just groups of amateur racers. At night, the highways were literally flooded with them. It's pretty dangerous, but also also sounds uh, kind of cool. That'd sounds be, super cool. It'd be fun. 1,000%. Yeah. Nothing is cooler than rolling squad style. It doesn't happen very often to me because um, I'm in my Mustang. And when I see another Mustang, it's usually beat mm-hmm. up. But, like, we just built those two yeah. 350Zs. I was going to talk about that. Yeah. yeah. And, like, rolling next to you in a matching car is one of the coolest experiences. Sick. On that show, if you haven't seen Watch Hilo yet, um, one night we had just upgraded the brakes and we were testing them and we were rolling down the main street. And I saw another Nissan. I think it was an S13. Um Rolling along, it was orange, and I was like, I saw him up ahead, maybe like quarter mile ahead. And I was rolling with Aaron Parker, uh, our friend and my mechanic, and he's like, "Yo, dude, go go get him!" So we like sped up to him. And I was just cruising next to him. I was like, "Oh man, this guy likes what I like." This yeah, is cool. Totally. I was going to. Uh, we shot an episode of Bumper to Bumper yesterday, and I drove the Z. And uh, right when I got off the freeway, uh, G thirty five. Oh yeah. Like pulled up next to me, and it's like this like Asian girl. And like she like revved, and then like I pulled, and she it was like, <laughs> and she was like, Fuck yeah, hell yeah, <laughs> like dude. so stoked. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah, it's just so much. It's so much fun. So this sounds fun, but dangerous. It is street mm-hmm. racing. Street yeah, don't racing street race. It's bad. <laughs> Many of the racers would try and form teams. The teams created at this time were filled with inexperienced drivers trying to make a name for themselves, hoping to win cash, attention, cars, gals. Yeah. Or boys. Yeah. Respect. Yeah. Family. That is a crazy idea that's like, yeah, dude, I'm just going to go out and like, what if you went right now? You're like, I'm going to hop in the 405, try to get me some sponsors. (laughs) (laughs) As the decade went on, there was a huge boom in unrestricted power. Kind of like what we're seeing right now with like Dodge Demon and like Mm -hmm. now supercars are making like over 900, close to a thousand horsepower. Like crazy, ironically, because of like um, efficiency standards, like turbos are really helping. Turbos and superchargers are really helping cars make tons of power. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Yeah, kind of the same thing was going on in Japan. The boom reached its peak in February of 1989 when the naturally aspirated version of the Nissan 300ZX was unveiled at the Chicago Auto Show. During the reveal, the president of Nissan at the time boasted that it was the only base trim level sitting on the auto show floor, and it only had a little teensy 222 horsepower. Not bad for the late 80s. The top-range model, the twin-turbo Z32, was expected to pull anywhere from 300 to 320 horsepower, which was unheard of at the time. Um. Little note for the the kids out there. During the 1980s, cars were generally pretty slow. To get your hands on the quote-unquote good ones, you had to spend a pretty penny or two, okay, to get yourself in the seat of a high-end sports car such as a Ferrari. But Nissan was about to change all that. In 1989, 320 horsepower in a 300ZX of that size would be equivalent to, like, the 370Z of today having the same power as the Ferrari 488. I.e., nutso. Yeah. At the time, Ferrari had just introduced the 348, and it made roughly 300 horsepower and weighed almost the same as the 300ZX. 
The Ferrari was selling for over $120,000 new, the equivalent of about $230,000 today. Uh, And that's where Nissan truly had Ferrari beat. Nissan expected to mass-produce the 320-horsepower 300ZX and sell them for a little over $30,000, equivalent to about sixty dollars today. That's like the C8 vet. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly it. Like, giving the people... That supercar performance. Right. It's like sort of like these companies are like, yeah, we can't do it for that cheap. And yeah. then someone shows up and they're like, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can. And all the consumers <laughs> are like, what? <laughs> Everybody do it then. I think in the case of like, the, I mean, in the case of Ferrari, as we know from our previous episodes, now still available on whatever platform you're listening to, um, the Ferrari name is what you pay for, right. really. Like. The performance is there. Obviously, you could you could get that same performance elsewhere, but mm-hmm. like, there's just something about there's that that it's heritage. a Ferrari. It's a Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. So when the Japanese press caught wind of what Nissan had announced at the Chicago Auto Show, the Japanese government started cracking down on automakers almost immediately. Okay, as soon as word reached Japan, a meeting of the minds. And all the presidents of the company met together to have a serious discussion of the impact of such a car on Japanese streets and the country as a whole. The government was afraid of what a powerful car like that could do on the streets. By the way, 320 horsepower. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> like now they're Camrys having, make that much. Right. Yeah. yeah. They're having a summit. That's so funny. <laughs> Came out freaking Focus RS. <laughs> Japan was filled with a lot of narrow and windy roads that careened through densely populated Kuge. areas. Yes. But most importantly, there's already that abundance of street racing. Uh, the last thing they needed were cars that could match the Ferrari in terms of power on their streets. That was pretty scary. Like, it was already, like, a health hazard, public health hazard. Now mm. it's like, this Nissan is a health crisis. So the Japanese government decided that all companies would be prohibited from producing cars that exceeded 276 horsepower. That's uh, a common sense car law. Whoa. The limitation was designated to last only 15 years. During those 15 years, no cars were allowed to eclipse that horsepower mark in the home market within Japan. Important distinction, within the home market Mm -hmm. of Japan. Each car manufacturer signed a gentleman's agreement that would enforce these restrictions in Japan. The goal of the agreement was to limit accessibility of supercar power to kids whose rich parents would routinely purchase them the latest and greatest affordable sports car. They had already seen what these kids could do with 250 horsepower and were terrified of the consequences of giving them even more. These kids weren't afraid of taking their cars out onto the highway at night and pushing them to the limits, all while throwing caution to the wind. While the world may have viewed the 300ZX as a massive technological step towards high performance for the masses, the Japanese government was more concerned about safety. Uh, the twin-turbo Z32 was the straw that broke the camel's back and made automakers realize that things, they were getting out of hand. But there was a way to get around the agreement. <laughs> Lots of companies. Lying. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of companies, Nissan included, installed restrictor plates in the engines to limit the power output. So while the car may have been sold to you with only 700. 276 horsepower, you could remove this plate or reroute a few cables and tubes, and all of a sudden you were pushing over 330 horsepower. Of course, there were labels from the manufacturer saying, don't do this when it came to making those changes, but telling someone not to do something usually makes them want to do it more. A good example of this is one of 
our favorite cars, and if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably one of your favorite cars too. The R32 Skyline GTR, aka Godzilla. <laughs> Yeah, you know that Godzilla word? Yeah. <laughs> the R32 was redesigned in order to push the limits of each restriction set in place by Group A Racing, including a 2.6-liter twin-turbo engine, all-wheel drive, and all-wheel steering. This beast of a car was well into development by the time the company self-imposed restrictions on power, and it obviously was capable of... Of more than 276 horsepower. So Nissan decided to install a restrictor plate to limit power. Once removed, the R32 GTR suddenly found itself with another 60 to 70 horsepower at the wheels. The most interesting part of the gentleman's agreement was how it actually made independent companies want to push the rules even further. People wanted to buy sports cars even more now that they were restricted. People and companies alike would tune their cars to make as much power as possible just for the heck of it. This was still all taking place at the height of the Japanese bubble economy. People had more money than they knew what to do with, so they began funneling it into their cars to increase their performance as much as humanly possible. While the agreement certainly saved countless lives by preventing reckless amateur street racers from having access to overpowered race cars, It also massively stimulated the further growth of one of the coolest movements in automotive history, the tuning movement. The tuning movement Mm. was nothing new by 1989, the year that Taylor Swift was born. In fact, it had been around since the 1970s, but it was this agreement that sparked a massive rise in popularity for the movement. And here's the thing about kids. Despite all the money their, their parents may have, The kids are usually broke, so while their parents may provide a modest sports car for them, they're not going to give them money to make it faster, and they certainly aren't going to provide them with a Ferrari, but amateur racers still craved max speed. They wanted speed, and they wanted it cheap. Look, Mom, I want speed, and I want it cheap. (laughs) (laughs) Are you tired of paying top dollar for speed? Yeah. (laughs) This put automotive tuning shops in a bit of a pickle. Uh, The shops had to develop components that were inexpensive, but reliable enough to be thrown on all these brand new sports cars that were basically being treated as disposable assets. Parts had to be reusable and transferable from one wrecked car to the next. Um, While shops were capable of designing these parts, the problem came, James, when they had to test them. This is where JAMA comes in. J-A-M-A stands for the Japanese Automotive Manufacturing Association. They realized that the street racing boom may have hidden potential. Tuner shops were modifying the cars for efficiency and power with much fewer restrictions than on uh, Nissan or Toyota. They didn't have the same government oversight. Obviously, the tuners were doing some... Amazing things, and JAMA was ready to make some money off of it. JAMA. JAMA. Roll tad. Uh, (laughs) The Japanese government began to support the modification of performance cars by way of financial incentives. This is getting a little weird. In their eyes, any insane modifications that could be used day-to-day that improved performance would attract foreign car buyers, a.k.a. Us. Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, any development that could be vaguely used in a consumer car to help compete against the American and European car market was incentivized by the Japanese government, causing even further growth within the tuning movement itself. 
Yeah, so they made this law that said you can't make your cars fast. Yeah. And then they paid people to develop ways to make, to make cars fast. JAMA, most importantly, provided high-end tuning shops access to the Yatabe, a high-speed oval testing circuit that was used to develop these high-speed parts. The Yatabe offered shops a safe and stable test environment, but nothing could really simulate the real-life conditions these components were going to see. After all, uh, Shakatan Shakatan racers were pushing their cars to the limit on the Wangan and Tome highways. The Yatabe circuit was super smooth by comparison. It was a bank track with no other with no traffic. Many small shops and engineering firms were capable of testing their products to their limits safely on the Yatabe, but that wasn't enough. By the time the gentlemen's agreement was formed, Yatabe was already an epicenter of the tuning development world and only gained further notoriety within the confines of Japan as the tuning movement really kicked off. Not long after testing by tuner shops was permitted at Yatabe in the late 70s, tuning shops began to test their products on the street. After all, only road testing could truly simulate the harsh vibrations and other variables of practical use. Separate shops began to group up as they would participate in testing together. One of the most notable groups born from this was the Midnight Club, <gasps> which was formally created in 1983. But of course, they were different than the other groups. Yes. Just to preface, okay, the name Midnight Club is not entirely accurate, okay? The name was most likely a mistranslation during a feature in an episode of Jeremy Clarkson's Motor World, the show that exposed the West to Midnight Club. Well, the Midnight Club is most commonly used by that name, uh, and there's even a video game with that name, one of my favorite games ever. I love Midnight Club 3. Uh, it's not the true name of the group. The true name of the Midnight Club is actually Racing Team Midnight. Or Midnight, for sure. Not a club. It's not a club. It's a team, dude. It's, it's a, a racing team. Yeah. Not some, we're not some club. We're not freaking we don't have club. a tree house. We're not playing golf, you dorks. Yeah. We're driving 203 miles an hour on the freaking highway together. <laughs> All right? We're a team club. You know what? Get out of my face. We're not throwing a freaking charity dinner. <laughs> All right? We're not going freaking pep rallying. We're not a glee club. We're not cheering on the team. We are the team. Wow. You dumb dork. <laughs> you wimp. You know who joins clubs? Wimps. You know who builds teams? Quarterbacks. Drivers. Race <laughs> Racing Team Midnight began as a vessel. For large, <laughs> why did you say ooh? Did, did the word vessel make you horny? <laughs> Gross. Uh, Midnight members were not just amateurs looking for a quick buck or a good race. Mm -mm. They were professionals That's right. seeking to test their products, usually in the middle of the night. Hence the name. <laughs> Hence the name. When there was the least amount of traffic and police presence on the highways. Unlike many other groups, the members of Midnight adhered to a strict set of rules when racing on the street. This code is probably what Midnight is most famous for, but there were even stricter rules and requirements to even get close to the team. To be considered for a role within Midnight, you had to be affiliated with the companies involved within Midnight somehow. 
whether it was in sales, marketing, design, engineering, or production of parts. You had to show that you were working to better Japan's automotive industry and ultimately the country as a whole. That's insane. So it's That's not even sick. like... That's it's not, sick. It's not even like a thing like, yo, man, you want to go fast? Yeah. You rich and want to go fast? Yeah, it's like, are you making Japan better? Yeah. Um, are you? Uh, are, are you? No. Yes. <laughs> no, you're not allowed. Oh, damn it. Midnight doesn't even exist. Uh, what? It's not real. Oh, no. I'm not even a person. <laughs> I'm a coat. <laughs> Furthermore, you had to have the skills that could work to the benefit of everyone involved. All the work that was done on the team cars was done in-house, and you had to be a, you had to prove to be a worthwhile addition, okay? No, no clowns allowed, whether that was ECU reprogramming or simply welding. Welding mm. is hard. I'll if bet. you knew how to weld, yeah. you wouldn't work here because you would make so much more money. That's true. <laughs> like if anyone, like the editors are different, but you and me, we don't know how to do anything. We literally yeah. have no skills. I'm trying to take pictures better. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, that's, that's not. <laughs> that's a okay. That's just a little tip for anyone listening or watching. Um, learn how to do something. Learn how. Learn a useful skill like something like that. If college, if you don't think you want to go to college, that's fine. Go to a trade school. Learn how to do like. Uh, when I was at Cuesta Community College, I took one welding class. Uh, and I've forgotten everything from it, but like they had a whole program and you could become a sick certified welder. Dudes make like fucking a hundred dollars an hour welding on big pipes. That's insane. Know? It's crazy. That's crazy. It's awesome. I spent 15 years yelling at people and then finally got paid for it. <laughs> um, yeah. And Quest, I didn't even have a course for yelling, yelling at people. At people. So, like, great. We should start one. Yeah. <laughs> Team Midnight members were instructed to be as diplomatic responsible as possible. While, of course, the members would sometimes have fun and race strangers from time to time, the majority of the time, they refrained from racing other non-team members. The racing on the road was never referred to as racing, but as testing instead. That's so cool! That's so cool. <laughs> it's I'm, so cool. It's so cool. We're gonna go test tonight. Oh, sick. I yeah. get to drive my car 200 miles yeah. an hour? Yeah, hell yeah. That's so no, sick. It's not fun. It's dude. not fun. We're this, testing. This is work. We are yeah. scientists, man. That's insane. So, like, we were saying, like, we, we haven't really said who was in the group because, like, one, I don't know. Mm -mm. Um, I've heard rumors. Yeah, lots of rumors. These are big execs in big companies. I'm not going to name any of these companies. Big execs. Like, big execs. Oh, uh, yeah. I do know one that we heard yeah. from a I source. met him at SEMA. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. And you're just, like, looking at him like, all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's a big exec. He's not a big man. No, he's a little man. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's just the kind of, that's he's got why that this BD. So cool. That's why this is so, like, it, it sounds silly that they're not calling it racing and they're calling it testing mm -hmm. and everyone, there's all these rules. But, like, when you think about it, they're coming from, like, a corporate office environment. A corporate of office environment. And they have, like, a lot of say in yeah. the things that they are testing. Testing came with its own set of guidelines that all members were required to follow no matter what. Drivers were forced to stay a minimum of one lane away from other traffic and would have to have their hazards on as if they were in the slow lane. Uh, so they're like, hey, we're going fast. Hey. Here are my hazards. Yeah. Look out. Um, they were also required to have super bright aftermarket headlights or even a bright paint job so the civilians could see them coming. Dude. This is so sick. <laughs> I'm getting a fucking... <laughs> I have such a crush. Yeah. 
One member even started developing body kits for Porsches that added a second layer of high beams beneath the original ones, causing many of the cars used by the club to share very similar bumpers with the Porsche 935 so they could all run more high beams. Yeah, it's like so cool to be an outlaw and make yourself brighter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, um, we got to do this really illegal stuff. But we don't want anyone to get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> so you better paint your car bright pink, and you better put lights all over yeah, it. It's, it's like, oh, it's yeah. so sick. It's like so cocky in such a fun it's way. It's so cool, man. Most importantly, they were to never conduct tests in moderate to heavy traffic. Uh, most other teams tended to drive recklessly or pursued max speed regardless of danger involved. Meanwhile, Midnight prided themselves on their concern for the safety those around them because they're trying to make japan better and japan isn't better if the streets are dangerous yeah you know what i mean like the people that they're trying to protect the public people the reason they're putting these lights on those are the people that they're testing these cars for for the betterment of for the betterment of yeah Yeah. it's so crazy since they were testing new and unheard of products everything under the hood of the car was to remain confidential outside the team one thing members never wanted to risk was a police presence in fact some members would have a hidden mechanism that flipped their license plate to hide their plates from cameras yes james bond dude. james freaking bond a few would go so far as to wear helmets during races to avoid being identified have you ever driven around with a helmet on yeah it's so so fun (laughs) it's really fun it's cool yeah driving around on the street with a helmet is the most fun it feels illegal for some reason Uh you know you're safer yeah it's weird well, yeah, the, the, the stairs you get are pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. Throughout our research, we noticed one of the most commonly repeated facts was the way that Team Midnight meets were organized. On the Wikipedia page, it is stated that meeting locations and times would be listed in the classified oh, yeah. section of a local Tokyo newspaper, and it would read something like this. <clears throat> or, go ahead. For sale. Small handbags at discount prices. For more information, I am available to meet at Daikoku Parking Area on Thursday between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. Thank you. It feels like a spy story, hearing the locations of secret meetups written in code that only a select few would truly understand. So a select few, like handbag enthusiasts. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to imagine the guy who's like, Hey, <laughs> what are all these cars doing here? I got my anniversary coming up, and I want to get my wife a nice purse at a reasonable price. At 11 p.m. <laughs> yeah, I thought the timing was a little weird, but I thought the savings might make up for it. All right. I'm going to be in hot soup if <laughs> oh, I no, show up hot my soup. anniversary without any presents. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Sadly, this whole story about the classified ads. It wasn't real? It's not real. Uh, It was meant to mislead people who were digging for the identities of the Team Midnight members. In reality, each member always knew where the next meet would be because they called each other. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Meets were usually held in random parking garages uh, not far from any entrance to the Tomei Highway. (laughs) Yeah, it's like you think about that story, then you hear it. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's so cool. That, that's exactly how they would do it. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, yeah, phone. <laughs> yeah, it's 1980. <laughs> it's 1991. Phones have been around yeah. for 80 years. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Right. That makes more sense. Yeah. 
So all this anonymity kind of makes sense from a legal standpoint, but to really understand it, we need to take a look at how Japan truly views street racers and how it differs in views from our modern society. From our Western society, yeah. rather, sorry. Uh, Japan is a very conformist, uh, conformist country with a very simple and clear black and white view of what is right or wrong. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Huh. Uh, and they are incredibly strict about their rules. There are, are no excuses for nonconformity. If you are a nonconformist, you are more or less outcast by society. Everything there is done as a team because they're on an island and mm-hmm. all of their cities are densely packed and they have, all their systems have to work together. And in historically unison. forever... Japan was just, like, alone. Yeah. Like, on purpose. Yeah, with just uh, different prefectures ruled by different, uh, not emperors, but, like, um, shoguns? Daddies. Daddies. Different daddies, different regions. They all had their own rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot more history to it. There's a lot of history. Actually, uh, there's a, was it internet historian? Bill Wurst. Yeah, he's got a great... With this history of Japan thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good. Knock, you should knock. watch that on YouTube. It's the United States. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. It's so good. <laughs> Despite this, like, really strict view of conformity in Japan, they also value individualism. Like, you can be an individual kind of weirdo as long as you follow all the rules. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's okay. why you have, like, people with six-foot pompadours and right. girls who dress up like bunny rabbits. Exactly. Day. So, like... You can do that, but as long as you don't uh, block the subway door. Yeah, don't block the subway door, but you can buy girls' underwear in a friggin' vending machine. Don't see anything wrong with that. (laughs) (laughs) You can eat dinner under a glass table where a girl is sitting on her butt. Regardless of how cool or individualistic someone might be, there is still that expectation that you will respect your fellow man and show courtesy honor and respect and in their culture there is no room for street racing yeah because it's like yeah. dangerous it's putting the other people in danger total uh i like that man i'm into that yeah like do whatever you want that's right just don't it up like here in the script says america thrives on outlaw culture <laughs> yeah it's just like we're, we have this like puritanical society in a way but then all those dudes are you know yeah weird so it's exactly so like we live in a somewhat yeah, puritanical culture, but we also love the outlaw. It's like yeah. it, it's we created yeah. a situation where we need an escape. Yes, and it's like just universally accepted in America that it's like, yeah, this is like really hard. It's hard to keep up with this. So every once in a while, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna tune my truck. I'm gonna roll coal. Yeah, there we go, dude. <laughs> I I win. Exactly. I'm gonna get a Harley. Okay, so we love the bad guys. Uh, Bonnie and Clyde, they're viewed as heroes for Mm -hmm. sticking it to the man. NASCAR, uh, that was literally born from breaking the law and running from cops. We love the Fast and Furious, but in Japan, there's no cool stigma around the Hashiyira. Hashiyira literally means street racers. But when Japanese people hear Hashiria, sorry, uh, they immediately think, of the Bozuzoku, James. Bing, 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 bing,
James really likes. The I love the Suzukus. Well, I'm about to ruin that for you. <laughs> Okay, so they immediately think of the Bozuzoku because in their eyes, the Hashiria and the Bozuzoku are one and the same. Uh, Bozuzoku, if you don't know, and if James's little uh, bit there didn't clue you in, they're typically juvenile kids on crazy bikes or loud cars causing mayhem and pandemonium. The Japanese consider Bozuzoku a menace to society. Uh, to be quite honest, and... This was kind of hard to learn for me because I really like the Bozuzoku too. They are considered the first step into the Yakuza and are heavily associated with the Japanese alt-right and neo-Nazi movement. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, the people, James, the people are not the... <laughs> people hate the Bozuzoku because they're freaking scary. They make a lot of noise. Uh, red light in their bikes. They uh, hit baseball bats on the ground while yelling around. They disturb the peace. And um, they've been known to follow people home from work and women into alleyways to uh, commit crimes and sometimes murders. Turns out these guys suck. Yeah. <laughs> so while the Bozuzoku styling is really cool and unique and we really love it, um, the Bozuzoku themselves are usually... Um, just a bunch of, yeah, well, I was just thinking, I was like, well, what if you could do something that's like just all the cool parts, but none of the bad parts. And that's literally what club or what team midnight is. Yeah. That's literally like, they were like, here's all the cool stuff, but we're not going to be. Yeah. Okay, guys, there's some rules to be on this team. Yeah. Yes. We do drive fast as. Yes. We do have very cool cars. Yes, sometimes we wear helmets while we drive on roads. <laughs> like, that's kind of nerdy. <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, you know what we don't do? We don't act like And if you act like an you're out. You're out. Yeah, man. I love the min- Team Midnight. Team min- Midnight. Turns out awesome. I hate Bosuzoku. Yeah. All right? Dude, I, mean, I, I just, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Yeah. I hate Nazis. All right? And Donut, I'm speaking for Donut, yeah. we hate Nazis. Yeah. If you're a racist piece of stop watching our stuff. I'd say, I'd say in general, if you're lonely, um, you don't have to be. And there's ways to not do it. And if anything, Nolan and I are here for you. Don't start hating people because you're a lonely person. There you go. There you go. Wow. Feel good. Yeah. Ruined Bosuzoku for me. Yeah. Sorry, man. Okay, so <laughs> if you're a street racer in Japan, you understand what pe- how people perceive street racers yes. in Japan, yes. and you don't want people to know that you're a street racer in Japan. Right, because like we just mentioned, like the street racing is seen... It's not cool. It's not... It's not yeah. romantic. Yeah, like, right. The general right. public doesn't see it as like, oh, wow. Because these guys, like we said, are very successful people. Yeah. Um, they have... High-level positions in brands that are household names yep. in Japan and all over the world. Yep. Some of these guys have companies that are worth billions of dollars. Yep. So in a society that is set on following rules, it would sink anyone's career yes. if it was publicly known that they were associated with a criminal organization. They would go from being respected by the population to being viewed as an outlaw or a rebel, which, again, is not cool in that society. Um, yeah, that'd be- that would, it would ruin their lives. So because of that, privacy is 
imperative in the group and Mm -hmm. ultimately the most important thing for them, which makes finding information on the team incredibly difficult. Communication with any Western media about the group results in an immediate excommunication from the group. There are members that will talk about their cars, but if anyone brings up Midnight, they're going to shut you down. And even though they remain anonymous, their cars are legendary cars such as the ABR Hosoki S130Z or the Yoshida Special Porsche 930 TBK Turbo. The Blackbird. The Blackbird. There's a freaking comic book about this car. (laughs) A manga. And many other amazing cars that would put even a modern-day supercar to shame. They would race down the Tokyo highways at blistering speeds over 200 miles per hour for five to eight minutes at a time. That's so impressive. That's so long. And that's so much ground you're covering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They would do this multiple times a night, some, sometimes with as little as 10-minute intervals between runs, all without breakdowns or overheating. Yeah, because they're testing. They're, they're testing, not racing. They're not racing. They're, they're testing. testing the parts of the cars. That's And, I mean... What you just read, that sound, that, I mean, that's testing. That's what that's it is. That's testing, yeah. That's what you do. And we're going to get into the cars and the driving next week in part two of the Midnight Club series. Uh, we'll be taking a deep look at some of these awesome, awesome cars involved in the club and some of the amazing thing that these tuners were able to accomplish. And as we stated in the beginning, the Wikipedia article that is used as a primary and only source in most articles was intentionally misleading to protect the identity of most of those involved. While some, are, while some information that we have may conflict with what information is generally shared, we can assure you mm-hmm. it's probably accurate. Yeah, we look, we here, James and I, everyone else at Dona Media, uh, we respect Team Midnight's desire to remain anonymous, and we'll be doing our best to uphold these expectations of privacy. We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to Pass Gas, a car history podcast by Donut Media. We had only just begun to dip our sexy little toes into the waters that are midnight. Today, we're not just going to go in-depth on the cars that participated. We're also going to clear up a few more popular myths and untrue rumors about the group and its members. And we're going to talk about the end of the Midnight Club. But at the end of this episode, 
We have a special message from Racing Team Midnight themselves. That's so cool. That's awesome. So stick around for that. That's called a teaser. That's do you, you think? I was about to ask. I was oh, like, no. do you think we're like honorary members? No. But like, even by asking that, it's like, no, no, no you stupid idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Team Midnight. <laughs> I'm like the opposite. Like we yeah. literally wear all the clothes that you and I wear literally have our club's name <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to begin this episode by reiterating one of the most essential rules that all members had to follow. Preserve the group's anonymity at all costs. Only a select few people outside of the group were even given access to any information concerning Racing Team Midnight. While there were many strict rules imposed by the members, there was one rule more important than any other. Do not talk to Western media. Other media was... Okay. Uh, for a while, team Racing Team Midnight members would feature their cars in Japanese auto magazines such as Top Speed. But once they became more and more infamous, all press interactions were ceased. In fact, members of Midnight are so strict on this rule that it, it was impossible to find any short stories or anecdotes for this episode. So sorry. We're going <laughs> to be mostly speaking about the cars. Uh, this was due to fear that any detail, no matter how tiny, could lead to the identities of the members being exposed. Uh, they have placed a strict embargo on the information that could be shared. Again, if you guys haven't listened to episode one for some reason, um, go listen to go it. listen to that. But if you haven't and you're lazy and don't want to go do that, uh, a lot of the information out there on the internet about Racing Team Midnight is untrue. It's deliberately written to protect the identities of the members. These guys are very powerful men. And street racing is illegal deeply illegal over in Japan. So if they were to be proven members of the club, um, their whole careers could be ruined, you know? Yeah. So take what you read online with a grain of salt and just trust us. <laughs> yeah. For have, some reason, trust us, trust us that we have the correct information. Our source was a, uh, a guy that we interviewed. He was embedded with midnight club. For Let's call him years. Mr. X. Mr. We'll refer to him as Mr. X. He was embedded with the club, with the team. Uh, for a few years, and um, I, I believe a lot of what he told us, so I think it's pretty accurate. All right, like we said on the last episode, what made the members of Midnight so unique was their ability to tune every aspect of their cars to make the ultimate top-speed machine. The members were offered to use the Yatabi high-speed test track, um, but they needed something that would more accurately simulate real-world conditions. Nothing simulated real-world conditions better than the real world. So they took their cars onto the Wangan Highway. The Wangan Highway is not exactly the most comfortable road to travel at high speeds over, you know, 100 miles, 100 miles an hour. An hour. <laughs> Expansion joints in the highway would cause cars to violently shake as they went over each bump, literally throwing the car into the air. If uh, speeds were high enough. So highly tuned precision suspension was necessary for the drivers to not lose control on these bumps. Having a good suspension was not only necessary to maintain top speed, but was essential in reaching top speed safely. One gun racing wasn't about hopping in your car and going as fast as you can. It was about perfecting the suspension systems and braking systems, as well as perfectly tuning your engine and transmission. Every aspect the car not only had to be mastered, it had to be, James, it had to be perfected. Racing on Wangan was more or less an art form if you were a performance shop, which is why Midnight 
always excelled above the rest because these guys ran big companies. Yeah. <laughs> they had the resources mm-hmm. to do this. Yeah. They like, I think the biggest thing about these guys is they're not jackasses. Yeah. You know, they have all these rules in place to protect the public. They tune every single aspect of their car. They're not just like hooning around being dorks. They're not jackasses. Remember, they're not racing. They're testing. To that point, if there's one thing that Racing Team Midnight stood out above all the other competition for was their understanding that power, power is nothing without control. So sometimes these cars would be reaching speeds of over 200 miles per hour. They would have less than 600 horsepower. That's that's super impressive. Yeah, that's super impressive. It's not about making the most power. It's about how well you can use the power, yeah. which I think. That makes sense. Yeah. I'm, on, I'm on board. I don't know if Enzo Ferrari would be totally on board, right? Because he was all about like. He liked the power. He liked the power. Like he said, aerodynamics is for people who can't build race <laughs> engines, which is hilarious. Yeah, it's like, uh. <laughs> kind of on the wrong side of yeah. history for that one. <laughs> Why we need to cut through the air? It is not the knife, but the hammer. <laughs> one uh, one midnight member once said in an out infamous quote that drifting and autocross <laughs> is for pussies. Hell yeah! We only do maximum velocity. Nice. That's that's so sick. <laughs> that is so sick. Uh, that really kind of highlights the members' focus on the precision of their work. On the Wangan. To members of Midnight, drifters and autocross would just throw more power on their cars recklessly to achieve better results. But to be successful on the highway, you had to master every element of your vehicle. These cars had to be tuned right to even stand a chance on the Tomei and Wangan. Team Midnight drivers would drive their cars on the highway at over 212 miles an hour for over five to seven minutes at a time in the mid-1990s. And they would do this for up to six hours a night in 15-minute intervals. Bike is so long yeah. to drive that fast. One, I've never driven over 200 miles an hour. But every time I've, like, topped out a car, yeah. it's like, whoa. Yep. <laughs> and then immediately start slowing down. These guys are just, like, cooking. That's insane. That's so long. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, by comparison, the fastest car on the road in 1999 was the Lamborghini Diablo. The top speed of 202 miles per hour. At top speed, the Lamborghini could only last about three minutes before the engine overheated. Uh, by comparison, the cars, the the midnight cars, would last over five times that amount. To bring in a modern day comparison, uh, like the Bugatti Veyron, with the power of, I mean, that's got a, an eight liter W16 engine, make. quad turbo, quad turbo. Yeah, it's got like 16 radiators on it. Anyway, it can achieve a top speed. Of 400 kilometers per hour, which is uh, 240 about, uh, but only for about 12 minutes before it completely drains its gas tank. Yeah, these guys get bigger gas tanks or what? I guess, and they're just stopping for gas. Dude, these guys must have been like burning cash at gas stations. <laughs> yeah, like, you're filling up again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you're probably like stopping. What are you doing? You're probably stopping for gas like twice three, a night. Yeah, at least. Yeah, we're talking about like. A lot of the, yeah, six cylinder cars. A lot of them are like twin turbo. You could never do this in LA because you'd, like, you'd go broke in like yeah. a week. <laughs> um, there were GTRs, Porsches, Nissan Z32s. Uh, some of the most eye catching cars, though, were the Lamborghini Countach's. Most notably, a Walter Wolf Special Countach, the only one like it in the world. But we might expand on that car in another day. Out of all the cars that participated. 
in Racing Team Midnight, the one that stood out the most was the legendary ABR Hosoki Engineering S13OZ. Nope. S130C. S130C. It was a highly modified 1978 Nissan Fairlady Z oh, yeah. that was capable of speeds just over 200 miles an hour. That Racing. is crazy. Yeah. You guys, um, I thought I wouldn't be able to find pictures of this because it's a midnight car, and I was like, oh, this is a secret thing. I looked it up on Google. You can find tons of pictures of it. It's, it's 280ZX. It's pretty sick is what it is, James. Yeah, super sick. The ABR Hisoki S130 produced upwards of 800 horsepower on its best tune. That's insane. That's insane. I wonder how much of this is true. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we've talked so much about how much misdirection there is mm-hmm. on the internet and how, you know, like, there's just this lore about this team and these guys. Yeah. Like, there's a freaking comic book yeah. about them. And, like... 800 horsepower on what is it like that L20? A great example of how this how Midnight pushed the edge. Um, it the 2.8 liter L series was bored out to three liters. It had an intercooled turbo, which I guess was uncommon for the time. Uh, a reserve fuel tank. That's yeah. Oil catch can, intercooler sprayers to keep the air cool. Um, so like an intercooler sometimes isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Little sprayers, the condensed water helps. Um, make the uh, the air yeah. even colder and thus denser, thus creating more horsepower. Um, the suspension in the rear was swapped out to independent suspension. So this could, is just a great build. Yeah, man, this thing's super cool. A lot of the bodywork was replaced with carbon fi- fiber panels, which that's, in the yeah in the eighties that's like on yeah early nineties. Like okay, I think carbon fiber started coming in. Like they developed that stuff so like they could build. The F-117 stealth bomber back in, like, the 70s, <laughs> yeah. the one that looks like a spa- literal spaceship, mm-hmm. and they're using this on a freaking Datsun. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> um, but to your point about if that's an accurate number, I like mean, that's- a three-liter engine making that much, I'm not quite sure on that. But, yeah. I mean, like, the turbocharged... Um, F1 engines of the time, they were making like a thousand horsepower, sometimes even twelve hundred horsepower in like the qualifi- qualifying spec. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I it's insane, but considering the people that were on Midnight, I believe it. Wow. Yeah. Um, in two thousand two, this car was brought to America to compete at the Nevada Speed Week on a closed highway. The car placed best in class, smoking modern day cars while using a tune from the nineteen eighties. What was so remarkable about this car specifically is that almost every panel was replaced with a composite part of some kind. It had been disassembled and stitch welded back together in the same way a race car is, also with a built-in roll cage. So they started off, you know, racing just their modded up cars wearing helmets. Now they've got full-on racing safety equipment in these things. I think here is where Team Midnight is like eclipsing their original intent. Mm-hmm. Like how much money do you need? Right. Again, because we have to remember this is also taking place at a time when Japan had a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And it's like, fuck it, dude. Let's just see what we can do. Yeah. The owner of the Yoshida Special had a habit of running around Wangan lit only by overhead lights, refraining the use of his headlights, and sometimes running in total darkness. When the owner did challenge people, which was rare, he would flash all four of his high beams, two in the stock location and two of the aftermarket ones that we talked about last episode, in the competitor's window to signal to signal a challenge. Of course, 
the Yoshida Special always won, without exception. He garnered the nickname Blackbird, Blackbird. as he appeared black as night, despite his car actually being a very deep red color. Oh, he was. He that's was, interesting. Yeah, he was. Also, Blackbird was red. Redbird. That's Redbird. kind of a cool name too. Jim Redbird. <laughs> My name's Jim Redbird. Jim Redburn. Jim Redburn. Um, he was also viewed as a harbinger of imminent loss or death, must, much like a blackbird or crow in real life. Okay, no wonder there's so much legend about this. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's that's a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> the Yoshida 930 Special Blackbird also became famous years later, like we said, in One God Midnight, competing against a blue S30Z, uh, loosely based on the specifications of the ABR Hosoki. Um, but despite what anime folklore you may have heard, rivalries did not really exist between team members. They would occasionally host speed battles on the Atabe, where they would compare top speeds down to the last kilometer per hour to, de- uh, to determine a winner, but it was all done in good fun. Um, when members were feeling really competitive, they would compare top speeds on a section of Wangan between Chiba and Yokohama. This section of the highway was... Uh, really was well known for its continuous straightaway, which made it the perfect ground for the midnight vehicles. Outside the team is where the real rivalries began. Companies such as Top Secret, you ever heard of it? Uh, It was owned by a guy named Smokey Nagata, who is a rumored to be a member of Team Midnight. Veilside, Signal, Auto, June, and HKS, they were all trying to be Team Midnight. And those are like... Those are those, those are the heaviest hitters yeah. in yeah I've heard of all Japanese those. cars yeah no other groups could ever compete with Midnight but that didn't stop them from trying one company West Racing imported a C4 Corvette and modified it specifically to face off against Midnight the Corvette was tuned to an excess of a thousand wheel horsepower now we say wheel horsepower sometimes and mm-hmm. I think some listeners. If you don't know, there is a difference between stated horsepower and wheel horsepower. And like the name suggests, wheel horsepower is the actual power that the tires are putting down onto the road. A lot of cars will lose about 20% of the horsepower from the engine to the tires just through the driveline and transmission and all that. Got all those parts to move. Yeah, exactly. So a 1,000 wheel horsepower is a lot. That's a lot. And it proved to be a big mistake. Even though the C4 could put down a shit ton of power, uh, the guys that built it could never correctly tune the car to handle that much, even with excessive modifications to both the suspension and engine. I'm going to say that this car was probably, it wasn't overbuilt. It was built to the limit, but probably couldn't make the power reliably. And just mm-hmm. tire technology back then is nowhere near where it was now. Mm-hmm. And that's something that makes this, all, this whole story more impressive, is that they were able to do these insane runs on tires from the 80s. The huh? only car that could begin to compete with the Midnight was G.A. Mitsunga's Tomir Monster Pantera, which was famous for its 307.69 kilometer an hour Yatabe run, proving that it was possible to get close to the Midnight cars. But Mitsunga was the exception, not the rule. Overall, the Midnight Club proved time and time again to be basically unbeatable. The Midnight Cars would also face off against top-tier manufacturers. They would meet up at the Itabe to prove the capability of their modified cars against high-end supercars at the time. Now, we didn't say anybody specific. I bet Porsche probably bought, brought their cars. Because mm-hmm. 
around that time the the nine five nine was out, wasn't it? Yep. I bet they brought it. Like, of course, there aren't any concrete sources for yeah. this stuff. We're just fantasizing. At this this point. is conjecture. What I'm about to say is conjecture. They probably brought the nine five nine, the roof, or some of their GT car, like GT three cars. Yeah, the Ferrari F forty was out. Yeah, yeah, they probably. Uh, I don't know. I bet. I bet Ferrari never went to the Utah. Yeah. Of course, where there is success, there are also imitators. Some of the biggest rivals of Racing Team Midnight were teams that were created in a vain attempt to beat them. Other teams would try to compete and would run names that in the end were just ripoffs of the original Midnight name. These fake teams would be would name themselves such things as Half Moon Knight or Wolf Sun, which is actually that's pretty sick. That's pretty sick. Uh, or any other combination of mysterious sounding English words slapped together. What would your racing team call be called? Wolf Sun's pretty good. Yeah, but that's already taken. Oh, Boost Creeps. Boost Creeps. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. That's good enough. Yeah. So the, the common theme between these smaller teams trying to beat Midnight is that they were looking for notoriety and mm-hmm. fame. Which is uh, the opposite. Yeah, that's the opposite of Midnight. And they just wanted to say that they could beat Midnight. Uh, they would frequently set records for extremely specific and arbitrary scores, such as getting the fastest run between, you know, exit this and exit that, just so they can say they could do it faster than Midnight. Meanwhile, Midnight was like, we don't care. Yeah. I'm sorry. Are you are you the ones selling these parts that we're developing? Yeah. Oh, you're not? Thanks for buying yeah. them, though. Yeah, exactly. Of course, there were plenty of people who competed against Midnight who had actually tried to become members beforehand. One of the more famous names is Smokey Nagata, the owner of Top Secret. He had long been a rumor to be a member of Midnight, but that was another distraction intentionally seated onto the Wikipedia page. <laughs> distraction, man. To dis- uh, divert attention from any members. Yeah. In fact, Smokey Nagata was denied membership to the group for being too reckless. At the time, Smokey was taking his famous gold-colored top-secret cars around the world and making top-speed runs, including one that got him in serious trouble over in the United Kingdom. James, how would you read this next section with a British accent? Smokey had built one of the most batshit, insane Supras ever. He yanked out the stock's twin-turbocharged 2JZ engine and replaces it with a 5-liter 12-cylinder 1GZ FE from Toyota's Century Executive Limousine. But that wasn't enough. He bolted an HKS turbo onto either side and used two ECUs to control the engine. Legend has it that this Supra made 930 horsepowers and 745 pounds of torque. This thing had a crazy aerodynamic body kit and suspension that could adjust itself on the fly and to top it all off a very nice gold paint the color of the queen's crown (laughs) Smokey was gunning for 200 miles per hour so he shipped the car to England he hopped on the somewhat straight A1 expressway where he was able to reach a speed of 197 miles per hour before being arrested by the Johnnies and spending (laughs) a few days in London Tower, (laughs) which is what we call jail here. (laughs) Um, Members of Racing Team Midnight didn't want that sort of risk and publicity centered around their group, so understandably they denied him membership. Uh, 
Yeah, try again next year, dummy. <laughs> the group is really good at protecting their members' identities. A good rule of thumb is that you have ever heard a rumor that someone is or was involved with a midnight club. Chances are that it's blatantly false, usually planted in order to divert attention from the real members. Popular rumored members include Akaichi Suchia, um, the... About guy based from Option Magazine. Yeah, from Option Magazine. Uh, or Junichi Tanaka of June Performance House. Uh, and they were never involved with the club. Also, just to put into perspective, the guy who started Option Magazine and the dude who fucking founded June aren't allowed yeah. in the club. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Many of these people who are rumored to be in it tried to become members, but... Uh, they found out that it was pretty, it's a pretty rigorous process. Um, there's only one applicant who is completely banished after a frame weld he made on a member's car failed at high speed, nearly killing the guy. The group has always been very secretive about the number of accidents that have occurred within midnight. Originally, they didn't want anything to do that would put pedestrians at risk, but also they didn't want to die themselves. At one point, an unnamed member with a black FC3S, that's a... RX-7. That's a second gen. No, third gen RX-7. He died in an accident on Wangan, but they still continued to drive it after his death. Apparently, members still meet yearly to pay their respects. It's rumored that this member's dedication to the club was so strong that the fellow Midnight teammates um, carved a marble gravestone in the shape of (laughs) of his FC. Of his RX-7? Yeah, near the spot. That's crazy. Um, so despite their, their goal to be safe, mm-hmm. there were a few more major accidents within the club and two accidents outside the club involving pedestrians. So the members that hit people, but they keep the details of those accidents close to their chests. Understandably. One time I went to a bar and there was a really long line to get in and I had to pee, but the line was too long. So I had an accident outside the club. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> the details of only one of their accidents is publicly known about, and that was the accident that took place in 1999. We, this is the end of Racing Team Midnight. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. In 1999, a few Bozuzoku bikers wanted to play with some of Team Midnight as they were racing down the highway. Despite it being a rule not to accept challenges from these guys, a few of the Midnight team members accepted because they're like, hey, we could probably beat these guys' ass. And before they knew it, they were traveling at incredibly high speeds into a high-traffic area. The high concentration of traffic led to a chain reaction collision pileup that resulted in the deaths of two of the Bozuzoku gang members as well as hospitalizing eight other motorists. Because it not... Harming a civilian was so important to the club. When this happened, they immediately announced that they were disbanding the whole club. And they publicly vowed to never race again. And that is that. That is the end of the Midnight Club, you know? Um, officially. Officially, that's they ended the club. Um, this is how I've always heard it. And that probably goes for everyone else. But <gasps> what? That's not the entire story. What? That's called a misdirect. Oh no! Uh-huh! Yeah! 
When the club formally disbanded, all they really did was start refusing to do any magazine and video publications of any kind. They informed every outlet that they had disbanded, but in reality, the club never stopped. <gasps> Members of Racing Team Midnight are still active to this day. They just refuse to tell anyone of its existence. Sorry, Team Midnight. You're still here. <laughs> uh, while the club still operates today, it is no, it's not anywhere near the same level of operation was in his prime members apparently still meet for yearly dinners, uh, which I think is adorable. I love, it. I love that. I would love to go. I want to have a yearly dinner with, with some of my friends. Yeah. Uh, and occasionally they meet in smaller groups with their cars for a few spirited drives on the wagon for the good old days. There's no longer the focus on developing new parts and leading the world in performance. In fact, new road restrictions in Japan have made it almost impossible for any group to have nearly the success that Midnight had on the wagon. Japan has pretty crazy speed limits, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and cameras and shit. Cameras have advanced. Um, radar. Radar. Also. Lasers. Well, now the, the tax on cars is really high too, right? Like mm-hmm. The bigger your engine is, the more taxes you pay on it. That's why supercars are pretty rare over there because they have mm. so, like you have to pay taxes per liter. That's interesting. Yeah. Primarily now the Midnight Club is a group of friends. You drive cars fast and meet for dinner. I love it. I love that. (laughs) So awesome. And while still upholding the initial core standards of the group, they still hold on. (laughs) We know a lot of that's us. Yeah. We know rich guys that have (laughs) fast cars and that's what they rich guys love taking their cool ass cars to meets and parking lots, Uh going on drives down like a Canyon and then Mm -hmm. going to like Nobu afterwards. Yeah. And that's what these guys are doing. That's what these guys are doing. Yeah. There's rich guys. Over time, uh, racing team Midnight has certainly mellowed out. Yeah, because these guys are like old now. Yeah, they're old. Um, but so has the Japanese tuner scene. Racing team Midnight has always been highly regarded as being a club that put pedestrian safety above their own while still discovering cutting-edge advancements in automotive tuning that would shape the world forever. They are probably one of the coolest secret racing organizations that many of us have never had the pleasure of hearing about. And that is why we are so glad to have been able to present this story to you. And now we have a oh. message from Team Midnight. And I know we kind of played it up uh, big. Um, it's sort of boring. <laughs> but that's how you know it's true. But that's how you know it's true. So we are delivering a message on behalf of Team Midnight. But. It is about trademark law. (laughs) (laughs) So listen up. So we are literally delivering a message from the coolest secret society, in our opinion. Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any coolest. No, this is like the coolest thing ever. Yeah, the freaking Japanese street racing Illuminati. has trusted us to deliver a message to you guys. So trademark law is a complicated subject. Um, but it's very useful if you own a business uh, and would like to protect your logo. It may seem like a small thing, but the midnight logo you see adorned on members' windshields or on those small stickers is, in fact, a registered trademark of Team Midnight. Members of Team Midnight have prided themselves on their high sense of morality and honor, and their cars wear the midnight logo with pride. Unfortunately, there are multiple sources online to acquire counterfeit memorabilia 
bearing the midnight name. The only way to acquire anything official with the midnight name is to be honorably gifted the item by a member of the team. The logo is not available for public use. We have been requested to inform all of our listeners that people who wear shirts, decals, stickers, or any other midnight memorabilia are not endorsed, nor are they respected by the team in any way. The logo is trademarked, and the team takes unlawful use of that logo very seriously. That's I'm. They're gonna sue you. They're gonna sue you because they're rich men. Don't don't steal people's logos. I'm not. It's the most absurd. What? I get I get where they're coming from. I know. I I there's I, some similar there's some logos out there that are yeah. quite similar to ours. Yeah. It pisses me off. And ideally, they would stop doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I know that this episode was kind of mysterious, but that really is just the nature of this thing. That's why it's, I mean, that's why it's lived on for so long. That's Mm -hmm. why people know, that's why there's an anime about a street racing team Mm -hmm. from 30 years ago is because it is so mysterious. And like you said, it's the Illuminati of street racing and it really is like, I mean, when you're doing something so cool, it's important. It's so hard not to talk about it. The they cars are impressive. The organization is impressive. The legacy is certainly impressive. But probably the most impressive part is that they don't talk about it at all. That's you the know most how, impressive part. Dude, do you know how much money they can make if they did a Netflix documentary yeah. on this thing? Yeah. And they came out as like, Team Midnight Unmasked. Mm-hmm. I'd watch that in a second. I'd watch that. But in- they don't. They don't do it. I'd watch it twice. Yeah, or if they, or if they sold merch. Oh, my God. If they like, do you know how many backpacks with racing straps you would see <laughs> at an FD event that said Team Midnight on the back? Yeah, and they I, could like sponsor a car. Oh my god! Like they could, uh, they could have Team Midnight. Yeah, that'd be so cool. But they don't. But they don't because they don't need to talk about it. It's not about men. that. They just want to go to dinner. That's right. And I want to go to lunch. All right, uh, you know the drill. If you like our podcast please 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 rate review and subscribe to it. it really does help us out i know you guys are probably sick of hearing it from all your favorite podcasts but it's the only metric we have that we're doing a good job so please do that oh and if you leave a review and it's funny we'll read it on the air how about that not too funny don't make fun of our voices or anything yeah don't don't be yeah. we're sensitive yeah don't make fun of Nolan's stupid voice. What? <laughs> uh, follow me on Instagram at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Donut on Instagram and Twitter at Donut Media. Follow me on both of those at James Pumphrey. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, It can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. 
which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.